we turn to the book of Habakkuk this morning. Now, Wes read a few portions. We haven't been here for a few weeks, uh, and you may not be familiar with Habakkuk. He is considered a minor prophet, not because he's less than the major prophets, but because he uh, was more concise, I guess. He wrote it in a, in a short manner. Uh, there's a number of minor prophets. If you have trouble finding Habakkuk, uh, you can either use your table of contents or you can go to Matthew and then count back five books into the Old Testament. You'll be at the beginning of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk wrote about 605, 607 B.C., so we are removed from him by uh, some 2,700 years, and yet uh, he was still a man of flesh and bone. One of the things, no matter where you go in Scripture, Scripture teaches us about the character of God as well about uh, the character and the plight of human beings. And uh, even though we might be separated by two and a half millennia from Habakkuk uh, and by a culture and by language, uh, he is still a person and a person who was dedicated to God himself and wanted to see God glorified. And Habakkuk, uh, just a little bit of review, was very troubled as uh, you may have noticed in that first few verses of chapter 1. In fact, he said, strife exists and contention arises. I don't know about you, but I tried to studiously avoid the political conventions these last couple of weeks, but I thought that was a very descriptive of our country. Uh, strife exists and contention arises in this election year. And... Uh, Habakkuk goes on in verse 4, he says, Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Our question today is one that really echoed what Habakkuk wrote two and a half millennia ago, and that is, is God just? Where is God and where is the justice of God in a world turned upside down? Uh, some people try to deal with the senseless suffering and injustice we see in our world uh, by abandoning any belief in God, by being taken an atheistic or agnostic position. Uh, I was there at one time, and I found it lacking uh, in those philosophical positions. Uh, it leaves some very big questions if you do abandon God in the moments of injustice. And of course, we are Surrounded in our culture and in our time period with much injustice, we see racial injustice, we see economic and political injustice, it seems to surround us. You may experience personal injustice in your own families, in your business, in your life itself. I think all of us have at some point or another. Uh, what can we say then to those who would say uh, there is no God, God does not exist, uh, Habakkuk lived in a time when the people of Judah were in rebellion, the southern kingdom of Judah, Judah and Benjamin, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, with headquarters in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and Habakkuk was a prophet appointed by God. And uh, he cries out, uh, justice is perverted. And I think that could be our heart cry in the 21st century if we're honest with ourselves and with one another. Two famous thinkers uh, in past history gave very different answers to the question uh, that how we deal with injustice and does God really care if he does exist at all. The first one was Martin Luther King Jr. And in his letter, 1963 letter, a letter from the Birmingham jail, he said that if there were no higher divine law that defined what justice is, there would be no way to tell if we were unjust or not. 
of course we know that dr king it was a follower of christ and he spent his life fighting against injustice and paid with his life for that fight his basic premises is if we have a moral attitude if we do cry out for justice there has to be a moral law giver in contrast to that position which would be a christian position the german philosopher and atheist frederick nietzsche uh, when he heard that there was a volcanic eruption and to, uh, tsunamis that destroyed Java in 1883, uh, he just wrote to a friend, and I quote Nietzsche, 200,000 wiped out at a stroke. How magnificent, unquote. And before we uh, think about the horror of that and his position in that, he was simply being logically consistent as an atheist because he didn't believe in God. He concluded that all value judgments are arbitrary. All definitions of justice are based on your own culture, your own temperament, and not on any objective morality. And, of course, Nietzsche's echoes come to us into the 21st century, obviously, as we look at our society and at our culture around the world, not just in North America. Two different, very different views between Martin Luther King Jr. and Nietzsche, but they agreed in one point, actually. If there is no God or higher divine law, then injustice is perfectly natural. So abandoning belief in God doesn't help with the problem of suffering at all. And so returning to our text, Habakkuk was suffering. He was in great distress at the beginning of this letter. In fact, Habakkuk, as a prophet of God, his uh, main job was to uh, communicate God's truth to the people of Judah. And it's interesting, as Habakkuk, as one of the prophets of many in the Old Testament, uh, he actually spoke to God about the people. Usually a prophet would speak to the people about God, which Habakkuk eventually does because we have his writings here with us. Uh, but Habakkuk was great in great distress, and uh, he doesn't find much relief he finds a dilemma in what God discloses at the end of, or in the middle of chapter 1 is that God is going to judge Judah. He's going to discipline them. Remember, clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God promised the people of Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will discipline you. And we see that history of Israel through the Old Testament was one of blessing and one of discipline, one of blessing, one of discipline. In Habakkuk's time, in about 607 B.C., uh, <clears throat> it was the end of the reign of Josiah, the last good king or righteous king of Judah, to be followed by evil kings and eventually to be carried off into captivity by Babylon. And so that is God's discipline on Judah. He is sending the nation Babylon. It has risen in the east. It has defeated Syria. Assyria. It has uh, defeated Egypt. Uh, Babylon is the superpower of the world at this time. And God is going to use these people, and he describes them. And the Babylonians and the Assyrians were, were evil. The Assyrians were, were uh, just cruel in their punishment of captives, and the Babylonians were even worse. And they were to be uh, used by God to discipline. This creates a great dilemma for Habakkuk because he said uh, they're full of iniquity, they're full of sin, they're worse than we are. And uh, even though Judah was in spiritual decline, the Babylonians were worse than them, and they were full of injustice, the Babylonians or the Chaldeans were, and they were full of idolatry, 
And so we come to this portion in chapter 2 today, and it's a rather lengthy portion, but we're just going to hit the highlights as we go through chapter 2. And one of the things about Habakkuk is the fact that uh, for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson famously titled one of his books, which I think he borrowed the title from somebody else. But I like that phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. And we're going to see today that Habakkuk had to have that long obedience in the same direction. So we have answered some questions. The first one is, does God care at all about the world events? Does God care at all about our national events, our personal events? Does God care? And we see that God is not asleep. He has not wound up the world and walked away from it, but he's very involved. Uh, a few weeks ago, we asked, a couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, is God fair? That was uh, Habakkuk's basic question. And today, is God just? Is God just? Charles Dickens wrote that there is nothing so finely perceived and so finely felt as injustice. And if you have been uh, struck with injustice in your life, there is nothing more finely perceived and no finely felt and with uh, so much injustice surrounding us, probably the logical question, the honest question is, is, is God just? Is he really taking care of these things? In verses 12 and 13, uh, the question is, as arised by Habakkuk is, why would God use a people of iniquity, of sin, that are worse than the people of Judah? And uh, actually, he pauses in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1 to reflect on the character of God and we see there in verse 12, he said, asked this question, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Uh, he's asking this question more as a rhetorical question to remind himself that, yes, God is eternal. He is from everlasting. He is holy. He is sovereign. In other words, he's in control of all things in all places at all times. Once you come to grip with that, the world takes on a different viewpoint from your perspective when you understand God's sovereignty. He has appointed them for judgment it's in his sovereignty. He is mighty. You have marked them for correction, Habakkuk writes. He is pure. He is holy. And so what does this have to do with us? The character of God speaks loudly to us in our pain and in the trouble that we face. When death is staring us in the face, we need to be reminded that he is eternal. When we're surrounded by the wickedness of the world, we need to recognize, but he is holy. And when uh, those who seem to prosper, who are evil, remember he appoints them for judgment. And that's what he's doing with the Babylonians here. When it seems like the whole world is sinking around us and we may be grasping at straws, it seems like at times, we need not remain in the valley of despair. Habakkuk was in distress, despair, and yet we, as we move through this short little two-and-a-half-page uh, book uh, in the Old Testament, we'll see he moves from this despair and distress to joy and worship. We will see that in the next couple of weeks. But in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3, we see God's admonition. First of all, Habakkuk decides, he anticipates, look at verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand on my guard force, I will station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see that he will speak to me. He is going to watch. This is a, a, a figurative description of the prophet's responsibility that he was to be uh, attuned to what God was telling him, to what God was going to say. And so Habakkuk 
anticipates, he's going to watch. In verse 2, God admonishes him to write. Then the Lord answered and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. It doesn't mean run for safety. It means that the news will spread as Habakkuk writes down, inscribes it on tablets, and communicates it to the people of Judah, that those who are still faithful, those who are following God himself, that they will run and they will tell others, those who are in spiritual declension, they will talk to them about this. So he tells him to write it. And then the third one in verse 3, notice there it says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time, it hastens towards the goal and will not fail. The very words of God. When we look at all the promises of Scripture, we look at the ones that have been fulfilled through the Old Testament in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we look at the promises yet to be fulfilled, and God's track record is 100%. It is perfect. He fulfills every promise. And here he's reminding Habakkuk that this will not fail. It will come to pass, but look what he says. Although it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay in verse 3. Watch, write, wait. Oftentimes we think that waiting is a passive exercise, don't we, when we're told to wait for something. But I have found that waiting is an active exercise. Think about when you are anticipating loved ones coming from a long distance and you have not seen them for a while, and what do you do? You wait for them, but you don't wait passively. You jump up, you look out the window, course now we text where are you you know where are you at and we but that's an activity isn't it and so waiting is not just a passive sleepy exercise and so he is told to wait in verses four through five uh, not only is Habakkuk to watch write and wait but God introduces what is to follow in his appraisal of the Babylonians and he contrasts the unrighteous and the righteous Look at verse 4 with me again. And here we see that there are two paths in all of life. If you wanted to boil life down, these are two paths. Behold, as for the proud one, he's referring to the Babylonians here. His soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by faith. The path of going our own way or the path of following God and going his way. That little phrase, the righteous will live by his faith, we don't get much indicator here. It's used as a contrast. It's almost like a parenthesis that God interjects in his message. And the, but this is a powerful, powerful text, these few words. And in fact, the New Testament quotes these words in three different locations. And we'll take a little uh, sidebar here to analyze some of these. But histor- excuse me, historically... Martin Luther, who began the Protestant Reformation, he, among many others, uh, was a Roman Catholic priest, and he recognized that all of his good works, all of his indulgences, all of these things he was doing was not making him sure that he was going to be in heaven, be close to God. Luther said of this text, this text was key in his transformation, in his conversion to true belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther said, And I quote him, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him because, not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. But when, by the Spirit of God, I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very 
paradise of God. And Christianity, the movement of Christianity was forever changed because God used these few words to transform Martin Luther's view and understanding and belief of what it meant to have eternal life. Paul, in the book of Romans, quotes this uh, verb or this uh, phrase. Uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes it, and also Paul, in the book of Galatians, uh, quotes this page, this verse. And uh, just a quick overview of some of those things. In Romans, the, it's a commentary on what it means to be justified. Remember, the moment a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's called justification. We are, <coughs> excuse me, we are freed from the very penalty of sin because of what Jesus Christ has done. Justification is a legal technical term which means to be declared righteous. It doesn't mean that we've never sinned, but it means that Jesus Christ took our place and he has given us his righteousness. And God views us through the lens of Jesus Christ who is perfect, the perfect sacrifice who died for the sins of the world, rose again on the third day, gaining victory over sin and death. And in Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul is making this argument, this case, why our good works don't save us, the type of people doesn't save us, but because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are declared righteous by God himself because of Christ's righteousness. So it's, in Romans, a commentary on our justification. And that's the foundation of the Christian life. It's not what we can do for God, but it's what God has already done for us. Entrance into that life of a Christian, of a believer, is basically receiving the gift of eternal life from him. It's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Over 150 times in the New Testament, the requirements for eternal life with God is believe or a synonym of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Nothing else is attached to that. No works, nothing. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That is grace. We are saved by grace through faith. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is talking about faith. This verse occurs at the end of chapter 10. If you remember, chapter 11 talks about people of the faith. And some are named, some are not named. Uh, some call it the chapter of the heroes of the faith. Uh, some call it that. But in that context, in chapter 10, the author writes, In a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, it will, he will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are believing and we are saved. It talks about a commitment here. And notice that it says the righteous will live by faith. It's not a one-time event. Oh, yeah, I had faith 20 years ago when I received Christ as Savior, or I have faith in the hard times. It's that ongoing process of believing God for who he says he is and that we can trust him. And this is what Habakkuk is talking about here, that the just will live by faith. And the righteous in the Old Testament was the observant uh, Jewish people or the people of Judah, and uh, they were still believing God. Remember, salvation, no matter where you go in Scripture, is still always by grace through faith. It's not by any man's works, because all the law does is it condemns us. It shows us our need of the Savior, our need of grace. In uh, the book of Galatians, uh, it's about life, about living out our faith. And Paul, in chapter 3 of Galatians, says, uh, writes these words, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. 
The only way to live is to live by faith. Uh, but the righteous will live by his faith. He will live by faith. The one who keeps us is the one we believe in. And so this verse is opened up for us in the New Testament. So God's appraisal, the righteous and the unrighteous, two paths, living by faith, the faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ for us, for the Old Testament saint, they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And uh, But then in verse 5, there's condemnation, and this introduces us to the rest of the chapter. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, so he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like shale, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers unto himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. And so God is introducing what he's going to say in the rest of the chapter here. And it's a condemnation of the unrighteous unrighteousness of the people of Babylon, of this very wicked nation. Uh, It was made very specific here. Historically, the Babylonians were much addicted and betrayed by wine and the use of alcoholic beverages. For example, Babylon was conquered while Belshazzar and his leaders were feasting in a riotous banquet. Uh, It looks inviting, but it ends up uh, like a snake and poisons like a viper. And uh, so God is recognizing and condemning the unrighteousness of Babylon here. They're arrogant, they're haughty, they're greedy, they're never at rest. And so this is a reminder to Habakkuk that God is not unaware. God understands the instrument he's using to discipline Judah. And uh, we can trust the Lord, even though we don't understand everything he is doing. Uh, The redeemed enjoy the blessings of God Uh, whether we can see it or not. On the other hand, the ungodly Babylonians face judgment. And uh, as a warning to the ungodly in our culture, in our time, they are facing judgment, and we should weep over that because without the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope, no everlasting eternal life in heaven with Jesus Christ. Uh, The Babylonians' pride led them to drunkenness and greed. The nations they conquered uh, would rise up against them eventually. And so we come to this passage in chapter uh, 2, verses 6 through 20, and it's really a song. Uh, Habakkuk was probably well-versed in leading worship, and this comes across as a song. There are five stanzas, and the marker of those stanzas is the word woe, W-O-E, or some of your translations may have alas, A-L-A-S, an old King James word. Uh, But the five woes we find here, and you can find them, excuse me, in verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, and verse 19. And each one of those woes is a stanza in this song, and there's three verses around each one of those. And so it's, it's like a song that is going on. And these are God's accusations, God's accusations against the people of Babylon. Remember, the prophet's responsibility was to communicate God's words to the people. Sometimes it was blessing. Sometimes it was the blessings of God they were communicating. Other times it was the condemnation or the woe or the alas. And this should uh, cause us uh, to pay attention. It's an interjection of distress uh, pronounced in the face of disaster or in the face of coming judgment because of certain sins. The prophets use that word woe a number of times, 22 times by Isaiah Ten times in Jeremiah and Lamentations, seven times by Ezekiel, and 14 times in the Minor Prophets. And here we see in Habakkuk 
five times that he is, uh, God has used it here. Uh, we see the first stanza beginning in verse 6. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him? Uh, this is like uh, a singing a song of taunting against the enemy. And that's what this is called technically a taunt song. Even mockery and insu ins insinuations against him. And say, woe to him who increases which is not his. Woe for intimidation. This first woe is compared, comparing the Babylonians to unscrupulous pawnbrokers who lend and then have exorbitant terms of repayment. And they're guilty of extortion. But they, in turn, will be plundered, God tells them. The second woe was found in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil game for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. Guilty of injustice, they seek to elevate themselves. The picture here is, is like an eagle's nest high up on a cliff where no one can reach it. And it's a place of safety and security. And the Babylonians were developing for themselves that type of fortress. And they would eventually forfeit their own lives. It wouldn't be too long before Babylon was destroyed itself. Verses 12 through 14, we see the third woe. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. They were guilty of bloodshed and crime, and they would gather nothing from their efforts eventually. God takes care of it. And the fourth one found in verses 15 through 17. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. Woe for indignity. Not only intimidation, intemperance, iniquity, but indignity. Guilty of getting others drunk so they could gaze upon their naked bodies is what God is saying. They would in turn be exposed and put to shame and filled with shame. Verses 18 through 19, woe for idolatry. In verse 18, what profit is the idol when the maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says a piece of wood awake to a mute stone arise. And that is your teacher? Uh, when uh, we've been overseas a few times and uh, when we were in Indonesia, uh, we noticed we were interior in, uh, on the island of Borneo. And, and of course, all of those uh, Dayak peoples, which are the indigenous people of Borneo, uh, were animists. They believed in the spirit world in rocks and trees and everything. And they would carve things of worship and things of protection uh, and you would see those around, and they were trusting them, and yet uh, they were things they made themselves. And then in more uh, upscale places like Macau, we saw temples full of idols, and we recognized that uh, this is what God is talking about, idolatry. And they were guilty of worshiping idols, and they would find that the idols were lifeless and useless, and only the sovereign God is alive and worthy of worship. Notice he ends this chapter in verse 20 in contrast to the idol worship of the Babylonians and, by the way, to the idol worship that surrounds us in our country, whether it's materialism or whatever ism it is. Uh, verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And with that, he introduces chapter 3, which is one of the greatest psalms in the Old Testament. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great preacher from uh, time past, 
was speaking on God's sovereignty. In other words, he's in control of all things at all times and all places. If he's truly God, he's all-powerful. And uh, the tension with man's free will or the ability for us to make choices, some call it free will. And Spurgeon wrote, he said, can you understand this? Because really it's a dichotomy. It's a tension in Scripture that is not resolved for us. We have responsibility of choice, and yet God is all-powerful. How does that work? We're not answered in this life. Spurgeon said, can you understand it? For I cannot. Uh, That's an interesting statement. Spurgeon was the prince of preachers of his time, a great theologian. He says, I cannot understand it, how man is a free agent, a responsible agent, so that his sin is his own willful sin and lies with him and never with God. And yet at the same time, God's purposes are fulfilled and his will is done even by demons and corrupt men. I cannot comprehend it. We've just seen it here, what he's talking about. Here God is using corrupt people, the Babylonians, to discipline his people, the people of Judah. And it's all working out somehow to his ultimate plan and conclusion. Spurgeon goes on says, I cannot comprehend it. Without hesitation, I believe it, and I rejoice to do so. And then his final statement here just just staggers me. I never hope to comprehend it. I worship a God I never expect to comprehend. Let that sink in a little bit. That is profound. If we could comprehend everything about the infinite God, would we even be staggered by anything he does? Spurgeon makes that point. I never hope to comprehend it. I worship a God I never expect to comprehend. Unquote. Joseph Hall says, It is the greatest praise of God's wisdom that he can turn the sins of man to his own glory. And that's what will happen someday. When the consummation of the ages come, all things will bring glory to God. I am looking forward to that because I want to see how that works out in my own life, in the life of others, in my loved ones, in our church. I want to see how that works out. I am looking forward to that. God's point in these verses is clear. You may not like my answer, but I'm in control and I'll take care of the problem. That's what he's basically telling Habakkuk. I'm not indifferent to sin. Yes, I'll use the Babylonians to punish Judah, but I'll also take care of the Babylonians. Evil ultimately will not triumph over good. And that should comfort us today. No matter what your view of the political system or any of that is and what this election holds, evil ultimately will never triumph over good. And to recognize that we are people who are in need of God's grace and mercy. This passage tells us three things about God, or basically the book of Habakkuk tells us three things about God. First of all, and we've emphasized this, God is sovereign. He is active in all the affairs of history. He uses nations to bring about his will, whether those nations acknowledge him or not. It's good to remember with all the conflict around the world, uh, God is sovereign over those nations, and he will use their actions to accomplish his purposes. Secondly, God is holy. He is perfect. There is no, like they say, shadow of turning with God. He is perfectly holy. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil with any sense of acceptance. God is just. Thirdly, he will judge all the evil in the world. 
It may not happen today or tomorrow, but he is and he will judge evil. Secondly, <coughs> this book, this passage tells us three things about the human condition. We are sinners and we are all subject and deserve God's condemnation except he has provided the Lord Jesus Christ. And he provides that imputed given righteousness so that we can stand before a righteous holy God and not be condemned because Jesus Christ paid it all. Secondly, we cannot save ourselves by our works. This is abundantly clear. Many, many people are deceived into thinking they can work their way to heaven, but in reality, they won't. <coughs> Excuse me. And thirdly, the righteous will live by faith. And it's not our righteousness, it's God's righteousness in us. And the message is clear in Habakkuk. Don't complain, don't doubt. God is not indifferent to sin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your people.